Welcome back from Thanksgiving. My name is Marty Scott. Some of you might know me. Some of you might not know me. I, I, I recognize people that I don't recognize, if that makes any sense. And so I'd like to take a minute just to introduce myself. I came to A&M. Uh, I was here from 02 to 06. I studied psychology and graduated in 2006 and began interning here in the college ministry. I interned here for three years. Uh, I did things like uh, oversaw servant team. Uh, I did some men's ministry, and I actually helped start the college ministry with Trey over at Southwood the first year that it was open. While I was an intern, between my second and third year, I'm uh, I had been dating Andrea, and we got married uh, between my second and third year. Uh, and after we finished interning, we decided to move up to Dallas, where I pursued my uh, Master's of Theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. Graduated in May, but uh, sometime in the spring, Trey and, and a couple other pastors called me up and said, Hey, uh, we want you to, to come and oversee our missions in small groups. And I was uh, pumped about that, because that's something that I love to do. And so um, be, between that and wanting to come back and work at Grace and be a part of a church that poured so much into Andrea and I, I, I was excited about that. And, and then also to be able to return to College Station. And uh, it's just a cool town to raise a family. And so all of those things, we were excited. We, we moved up with our son. Uh, I have a son. He's one and a half named Andrew. I would say if, uh, if you do anything during your four years at A&M, you should meet Andrew. Uh, he will change your life. He will rock your world. Uh, he is uh, just really awesome. So um, yeah, here we are. Uh, we started in June and we love our little life here in College Station working with students. So um, about five and a half years, well, we got married five and a half years ago. We got married here at Grace during the summer in the middle of July. Uh, it was hot, but we still went through with it. Real quick, here's my, here's my cute little family. Yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah, like I said, he'll change your life, that little guy. So um, we got married about five, five and a half years ago here in College Station. And we got back from our honeymoon and all of our stuff had been moved into our apartment by our friends, except for one thing, and that was our bed. We, uh, we didn't have a bed. And so we went to Andrea's old apartment and we, we picked up her bed and we brought it back to her new apartment and we started unloading it. And it is a heavy bed. And so as we're, we're unloading, I hear someone yell down to wait and I look up and uh, our apartment is two stories. And on the second story, there's a guy sitting up there without a shirt and cut off jeans, drinking a beer, um, watching us. And he puts down his beer and runs down and he helps us start carrying in this bed. And, and so while we're carrying it in, I introduce myself. My name's Marty Scott, and he introduces himself to me, and we finish it. And I realize I don't remember what his name was. And so I think, no big deal. I'll, I'll, I'll introduce myself again, maybe, or I'll, he was with his brother, so he, I'll hear his brother say his name. Uh, so the next day I go to work, and I get home from work, and I'm walking down the sidewalk, and he's sitting up there, and I hear him yell again. He's uh, shirtless, drinking a beer. I think it was his summer job. Uh, so he's up there, and he, he yells down, well, hey there, Mark. How's it going? And I think, oh, no. Like, he thinks my name is Mark. Maybe he's just had a lot to drink and, and it just slurred or something. Um, but then I think, I don't even know his name still. So I just say, well, hey man, how's it going? And, and keep going. Uh, thinking, well, maybe next time I'll introduce myself again. Next day, same thing. Come back. He's still up there. He yells, hey Mark, sure is hot outside. And I think, well, 
definitely wasn't slurring it. He thinks my name is Mark. And again, I, I just say, hey, man, how's it going? And, and walk in. So this goes on for weeks. Uh, weeks go by. He continues to call me Mark. Now his brother's calling me Mark. And we have no idea what his name was. I actually was telling Andrea this story and she was like, oh yeah, Jim, right? Or was it Tim? And I was like, I really thought it was John maybe. Um, so still didn't know. So throughout the semester, we would talk about how we wanted to invite our neighbors over for dinner. But I said, we can't invite them over for dinner. It would be too awkward because I would have to admit that I don't know his name after all this time and that he's been calling me the wrong name all this time and I wasn't brave enough to correct him. And it was just so awkward that I never did anything. And our relationship continued to be him saying hi to me as Mark and me saying hey man to him every day. The furthest our relationship, the furthest our friendship ever went was saying hi to the wrong person. And this is because you can't have a relationship with someone if you don't know the most basic thing about them. If you don't know their name, you can't have a relationship with them. If you know the wrong name, you can't have a relationship with them. A lot of you have probably experienced this. You might be thinking of someone in your mind like, I still don't know that person's name. I'm, I'm terrible with names. I, I don't like names. I try to avoid them. But this is an issue when you're in college ministry, right? Because my job is to build relationships with college students. My job is to have deep, meaningful relationships with you. So if I don't know your name, I can't have a relationship with you. If I don't know the most basic facts, the most basic things about you, we're going nowhere as friends, right? And the same is with you and the person next to you. If you don't know their name, you probably don't have a real strong relationship with them. And the same is true with Jesus. If we don't understand the most basic things about him, what he calls his own self, what he says about himself and why he says those things about himself, then we're going to struggle to have a deep, intimate relationship with him. The more we know about those basic, fundamental things, what he says about himself, the deeper, the more intimate our relationship is going to be. A few weeks ago, I was reading through uh, John 14, and uh, I read, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And I, I read it, and I just kept going. I didn't even think about it. And then later, I was, I was re-going over that passage, and I thought, what does that mean? I, I read it, and I just read right through it, because I've heard it a hundred times. I've read it a hundred times. And so I didn't even stop to think, what does this mean? And and my guess is, well, I asked myself, if somebody said, Marty, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the life? What would you say? And I really, I was like, "Uh, I can't really answer that question. What does Jesus mean? Why is he saying, I am the life? Or I am the truth? Or I am the way? And so this evening, I just want to spend some time talking through what this means with the goal, with the hope that by understanding I am the way and the truth and the life, we will be able to have at least a little bit deeper relationship with Christ. We'll grow in our relations with him a little bit more. So if you want to turn with me, John 14. To put this in context, John 14 is happening uh, at the Last Supper. At this point, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He has predicted that Judas is going to betray him. And he's foretold that Peter's going to deny him. So things are going downhill quick. The disciples are probably pretty depressed, right? This guy, he's leaving. This guy, he's denying. Um, Things aren't going well. And so Jesus steps in in chapter 14, and he starts to encourage them. 
In 14.1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Before we look at I am the way, the truth, and life, we want to look at the context of why he's saying that. And, and he sets it up wonderfully. He starts out talking about um, the Father's house in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms, right? What does he mean when he says, in my Father's house? And he's using a figure of speech here to talk about heaven. He's saying, uh, my Father's house is, is heaven, and it has many rooms. What he's trying to communicate is heaven is a really big place with no limit for how many people can be there. It is an endless house with lots and lots of room. Then he tells the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Before, when when I would read this verse, I would always think of Jesus up there building more rooms. He's a carpenter, right? So I would picture like a new person trusting in Christ, and so he'd build another room, prepare another room for him. And another person would trust Christ and he'd prepare another space for him. But what he's talking about here is uh, his death and resurrection. So he's telling the disciples, I'm about to go and prepare a place. I'm about to do this thing that's going to prepare heaven for those who believe in me. And so the disciples are looking forward to this. If he were to tell us that now, he would say, hey, when I died and when I rose again, that was me preparing a place for you. So, so Jesus is encouraging them. He's saying there's this big place that I am preparing for you to go. This big place with limitless rooms. And he says, you know the way to get there. The problem is, typical of the disciples, they hadn't been paying attention, and they didn't know the way. And so luckily, Thomas pipes up and says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He lays it, lays it out, boom. This is one of the most controversial verses in our culture today. It's really, this verse might be one of the greatest lines in the history of the world, if you think about it. It is that big of a deal. It is a game changer. It changed everything for our history. If you want to know the Father, me, it is through me. And so he answers very directly to Peter, or to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. So the first thing is the way, the first one we're going to look at. The way is another word for road in Greek. So uh, we have streets, we have roads, they are ways to get from one place to another, right? In the Greek, that's the same, same thing. Way equals road. So Jesus is saying, you want to get to the Father's house? You want to know the way? Here is the road to get there. If you ask me, what is the way to my house? I would tell you to go down Anderson, 
go down George Bush, then turn left on Texas, go all the way into Bryan, turn right on Coulter. That is the way to my house. Those are the roads you take. Jesus is simply doing the same thing. Do you want to know the way to the Father's house? This is the road you take. But he's using a a figure of speech, right? Uh, Nobody thinks that Jesus is actually a road. Um, So he's, he's actually saying that through me, I'm the means to get to the Father's house. And the way that we get there is through his redemption. In Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. We have access to the Father through the redemption that comes through Christ. He is the road to the Father, and that comes through his redemption. That is how we arrive there. But he's saying a lot more than that. He's actually making a huge statement of exclusivity, right? He is claiming that he is exclusively the way. A lot of you might have heard the, uh, the saying, uh, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I have no idea. Some people are like, what? Uh, I have no idea why you'd want to skin a cat, right? If you're a cat person, you're like, this guy's crazy, But this is a saying. My dad says it to me all the time, so I think it's true, um, that there are more than one way to skin a cat. So besides the fact that I have no idea why you'd want to do such a thing, pretend with me for a second that I am skinning a cat. And you came up and you said, Marty, is that the way to skin a cat? I would say, why no, it is a way to skin a cat because there are more than one way to skin a cat, right? Jesus is saying kind of the opposite of this, right? He's not saying there's more than one way to get to the Father. He's saying, I am the way. I am exclusively the way. He follows up this statement by saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is his claim to be exclusive access to the Father, This is a big issue in our culture today, isn't it? We hear, uh, not just in our culture, but really all over the world, it's shifting to this idea that what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is what's right for me. We talked about that some this this semester when we talked about postmodernism. This idea that you have a way, and that way is right for you, and I have a way, and that way is right for me. You can't tell me the way I should go. And then Christians, we we come through and we say, well, there is only one way and we're called exclusivists, aren't we? And what I say to that is, if if what you're talking about is, I believe there's one way to God, then so be it. Label me an exclusivist. But generally how the the culture pictures it is, we're a bunch of people who we have this club and this this group and we put our arms around it. We don't let anybody in unless you're perfect like us. I mean, they, they feel like that's how we're exclusivists. My wife is in this group called Pursuit 31. Does anybody out here on Facebook, does anybody out here know what Pursuit 31 is? No, I didn't expect you to because they are super exclusive. Um, to be in Pursuit 31, you, three things. You have to be a woman, you have to be Christian, and you have to be a photographer. It is a group for Christian women photographers. I only am one of those things. I'm Christian, so I am excluded From Pursuit 31, they have this wall around their group and they don't let anybody in unless you have all three of those characteristics. But Christianity is different. We say anybody can come, right? We welcome anybody into our club, into our church, into our group, into our life. We want people to come. 
We aren't exclusive towards people, but we say that exclusively Jesus Christ is the only person, the only way to gain access to the Father, to have a relationship with God the Father. I went to in 2007 and uh, we were ministering to Muslims and they were the last people I, I thought I would hear this from. But as, uh, as I had conversations with different students, I kind of had the exact same pattern of conversations. They would, uh, we would be talking and I would talk about who God the Father is and they would be talking about who Allah is. And as we talked more and more, they would always come to this conclusion that, well, it sounds like you and I are talking about the exact same God except you're American, and therefore the way to your God is through Jesus, and I'm Muslim, therefore the way to, to Allah is through Muhammad. And I would always look at them and say, if that's the way it is, then we're not talking about the same God. Because for my God, there's only one way to him, and that's through Jesus Christ. And I don't have to be apologetic about this, because he's the one that makes this claim. I don't make this claim. I'm just a messenger. Jesus claims this exclusivity. So I want to challenge you as you think about the way. Think about people in your life that might be shifting from what this way is, right? Think people who think uh, maybe it is Muhammad who, who gives you access to the Father. Or they might think that it is uh, Buddha um, or, or even Abraham and the law or even closer to home, church and baptism and works. People use all of these things. They think that they're the way to God, but we know through what Jesus says here that there is one way. So I want to challenge you, direct people to that way. Don't be ashamed that you know the way. This isn't something to be shamed about. Christ tells us, I am the way, and it's your job to direct people, to correct people so that they are on that way to the Father's house. So we see that the way is, it's a road, simply put, but it's also, it's analogous of our redemption through Christ to God, and it's an exclusive claim. The next thing we're going to look at is the truth. So he says, I am the way, then he continues, I am the truth. I was trying to think of what truth is, and I had a hard time coming up with a definition. I thought it's the absence of errors, the absence of lies, Um, but I thought it'd be better if I just look it up, so I I looked it up in the dictionary. The definition of truth is to be true. That didn't help at all, so I I beat the system, and I looked up true, and true is uh, to be in accordance with fact or reality. To be true is to line up with what is real, What is fact? So for instance, uh, five plus five equals 10. That is a truth. And it lines up with accordance with reality because I can count five here, I can count five here, and it equals 10, right? So always five plus five equals 10. That is truth. That is reality. And so we know that it's a truth. Then we have to wonder, what does this have to do with Jesus? Why did he claim this of himself? Later in John, he'll say, of God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The idea is everything that God and therefore everything that Jesus says, everything that he does, everything that he claims, everything that he promises, it is reality. It is true. It is fact. It will happen. You can depend on that. You see, because truth in its essence is dependable. You can always depend on something that's true because it won't change because it's real. 
right? And this is important because Jesus just said, I am the way. And now he's saying, I am the truth. You can depend on me to be the way. I'm the way to the Father, and you can depend that I will take you there. I will always lead you there. And this will be true for all of history, that when you accept and trust me as your Savior, I will take you to the Father's house. Jesus is dependable because he's the way. But something else uh, happens with truth. Because it's dependable, it demands obedience. So when we hear truth, we have to choose either to obey or to pretend that it isn't actually truth. Some of you might have been to the state fair before. I had never, I grew up in Houston. I had never been to the state fair uh, until I went up to Dallas for seminary. And then we went all four years because I could not get enough fried food. Um, the state fair, it's, it's fun. There's a lot of games and stuff. But if anybody has ever been there, you know uh, that there is a parking situation. The state fair has these big, huge parking lots that are all gated and guarded. And it is expensive to park in there. But if you're cheap and you park outside of those fences, you won't have a car when you're done. The rate of like car theft and people breaking into cars at the state fair is ridiculous. So we go to the state fair one year and we choose to park in the, uh, the state fair parking. We're not crazy. And so we choose to park in there. And so we pull up and roll down the window and the parking lot attendant comes up and uh, says, it's going to be $20. And my, my buddy who's driving says, uh, free, free 30 and we all kind of look at him and we're confused in the parking lot and it says, no, $20. And he says, yeah, free 30. Uh, and I was like, did he just say free 30? Uh, and, and the parking lot attendant's confused some more and says, $20, sir. And he says, oh, sorry, free 50. And uh, it went, at first it was silly, but it got really awkward really fast because this literally went on for like two minutes, which think like two minutes, that's a long time to be arguing about something that's $20 being free. Um, so finally he's like, oh, sorry, you know, it's not free. Uh, how about $5? And the parking lot, I mean, the parking lot attendant, he doesn't care. He's a parking lot attendant. He just wants the $20 to give you the little ticket so you can go park. He's not gonna barter with you. But this guy is like, hey, what about $5? What about $10? And finally, thankfully, his wife takes 20 bucks and hands it to the attendant and we pull in. And why was that so crazy? Why was it awkward and abnormal? Because there was a truth. And the truth is to park there, it's $20. That is fact. $20 to park in this parking lot. And he was disobeying that truth. He was blatantly going against what he knew to be a fact. And it was awkward. It was weird to be with him. And that's how it is with obeying truth for us. We see truth and it's blatant. It's, it's glaring at us. It's right there. And so often we choose to look the other way, to say, well, maybe this isn't truth. Or uh, it's, I'm uncomfortable with this truth, so I don't want to listen to it. And that's the thing. When you do that, you're pulling away from it being truth because truth demands obedience. A.W. Tozer says, truth is a glorious but hard master. It makes moral demands upon us. It claims the sovereign right to control us, to strip us, even to slay us as it chooses. Truth will never stoop to be a servant, but requires that all men serve it. It never flatters men and it never compromises with them. It demands all or nothing and refuses to be used or patronized. 
it will be all in all, or it will withdraw in silence. This is a really deep statement. I know this because it took me six times before I understood it. You have to read it a lot. But what he's saying is truth will not change for you. You have to serve truth. Truth will not compromise. When Jesus says, I am the way, this is a truth. And he will not compromise with this truth. He will not skirt that line for you. Maybe you don't like one aspect of the fact that Jesus is the way. He's not changing. He's not compromising for you because it is reality that he is the way. And that will not change because of something that you desire. Truth is always truth and it demands obedience. So as you think through your time in the word, I want you to to think about what truth am I learning as I read this? Whenever you open up your Bible, don't just read it to read it, but read it to find those specific truths that you can obey because God's word is truth. So Jesus' claim to be truth, it's dependable. He will always lead you on the way. He will always come through with his claims, but it also, it demands obedience. And the last word is life. Life is a big theme for John. He talks about Jesus being the life quite a bit. In John 1, 4, he says, In him, talking about Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. In eleven twenty five, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is a, a similar I am statement to what we're studying now. And then he says in seventeen three, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is life, that you know God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life is knowing God and thus knowing Christ. So how is Christ the life? Christ is the life because he allows us access into what he's been describing. I describe it as life is the life of God experienced in our own life. For those of you that went to elementary school, you know that you don't define a word with the word itself. I did that twice here, but it makes sense. Life is the life of God experienced in our own life. It is the fullness of God's life. It is the fullness of his glory experienced in our own situations, in our own life. And Jesus allows that to happen. Jesus brings that. We've heard in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, have eternal life. What he's talking about here is um, not just the longevity of our life, of eternal life, but the fullness of this, the vitality of it, the experience of life right now when you believe, right? But also in the future. So I think, in this passage, and I am the truth, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he's, he has in view that future time when we will be in God, in the Father's house. Right now, we experience it in little bits, in, in glimpses of what this life is. Maybe when you are walking in obedience, maybe when you experience the church as it should be, you see a little bit of what life is. But he's saying, in the future, because I am the way and the truth that's dependable to get you to this house— This house is going to be glorious. And while you're there, you will be in constant contact and constant dwelling with the Father. And through that, you will experience the fullness of life that you are meant to experience. One commentator said, uh, Only the knowledge of God can give enduring satisfaction because God alone is eternal. 
Contact with God will provide the fullest experience in the experience of God's eternal being will be eternal life. Contact with God, dwelling constantly with him in the Father's house, will bring that fullness of experience, fullness of life that we yearn to have. When I was a, a senior at a and I was reading Chronicles of Narnia. I love those books, um, classics. Uh, and so I'm, I'm reading those my senior year, and I was leading a Bible study, one of the servant teams. And so my co-leader and I one night were working on Bible study, and something was going on in my life. I really, I, I have no memory of what it was that was going on, but it was frustrating me. I was, I was really uh, just exhausted from it. I was uh, frustrated, annoyed by it. And so we're going through Bible study, and all of a sudden I just blurt out, I just want to be in Narnia. <laughs> and I stop and I think, did I, did I say that out loud? I, I think I did. And, and she's just kind of like blinking, staring at me. I'm like, who are you, weirdo? Um, and so uh, she could have run. She probably should have, but instead she stayed and we worked through my issues. And what we came to understand is um, that my, my deepest yearning was not for Narnia. It was a yearning for something else. Uh, It was a yearning for something greater than what I'm experiencing here. We all experience the fallenness of this world, but we were meant to experience the fullness of life that comes with dwelling with God, right? We were meant to experience the glory and the the purity of, of being with God all of the time. And my frustration was that I wasn't experiencing that. Some of you in here uh, at some point have probably felt that. You've probably felt, as, as he said, dissatisfied with what's going on in your life, with the fallenness of this world. And I'll tell you, the only way to have satisfaction, the only way to, to even begin to experience life now is through life, through Jesus, who claims to be the life So if you haven't trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, now is a great time. He is our satisfaction. And and that's the only way that we will ever be able to experience that. He is the way and that he is uh, the road to the Father. He he directs us to him through his redemption, right? He is uh, the truth because he is dependable. He will always take us on that way. He will not let us fall off. Once we are there, we are there. And he is dependable to keep us there. And that, that truth, uh, that dependability demands our obedience. And then he is the life. He is eternal life. He is the fullness of experiencing God here and when we dwell with the Father in eternity. My hope is that as you understand these truths, as you begin to see more of who Christ is through these basic claims that he makes of himself that will give you depth in your relationship with him, that you'll be able to draw near to him through these things. As, a, as you prepare for Christmas, I, I don't know about you, but I have a schedule. I have an agenda, an agenda every morning that I do every day. I get up at 5.30, I read. Um, I spend, oh, I know, 5.30. When you have a kid, you'll understand. Uh, you have to get up at 5.30. I get up at 5.30 and I read for about 30 or 45 minutes. It's the only way for me to have quiet time. 
But what happens over Christmas break is you're traveling, you're staying in hotels, you're staying with family and there's 40 people and there's no way to get, to get away from anybody, to have any type of silence at all. And so what happens, always for me at least, is my time with the Lord goes out the window. I lose that discipline of getting up and spending time getting to know Christ a little bit more each day. I lose that, that discipline of spending day and day uh, learning who he is. And so I want to challenge you and give you an option, a way for you to build that discipline into your Christmas break. Uh, something that Grace made a while back was uh, this Bible study called The Advent of Christ. If you go online to grace-bible.org and search Advent Christ, you'll find this Bible study. Do not search Advent of Christ. Everything will go wrong. Don't know what, what it is with of, but Advent Christ uh, is key to this search. And this Bible study will come up. And it's a simple Bible study. It's four studies for four weeks of Advent, right? And it's a way to, to read a passage and then meditate and answer questions on who Christ is. And by doing that, building depth into your relationship with him. Again, by knowing a little bit more of those basic characteristics of what he claims and what the word claims about who Jesus is. If you're in a Bible study, well, Bible studies are over, but you might have a small group. And it's a great opportunity for you to do this and hold each other accountable, to go through this, this packet and, and walk with one another and hold each other accountable to doing this, this packet. It, it's a great little thing um, for you to draw closer to Christ over Christmas. So my, my prayer, my hope for you is that through understanding a little bit more of I am the way, the truth, and the life, that your uh, relationship with Christ will draw closer, will become more intimate. And then as you uh, maybe study him over the Advent, that that will allow you to draw closer to him as well. Pray with me. Father, we worship you because you are the way. Uh, you're the one who made a way to the Father and you are the only way. Father, we worship you because you are truth, that you are dependable, and we pray that we would walk in obedience to that. And we worship you because you are life. You alone bring eternal life. You alone bring fullness of life. Lord, we pray that we would know you more because of this. Father, we pray for Christmas that it wouldn't be a time uh, just about family and, and gifts, but it would be also a time to know you, a time to worship you and draw closer to you. Lord, we pray that, that again, cliche, that that would be the reason for this season, that we would be able to worship you for sending uh, your son, Emmanuel, to us. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.